Well, so today, I am, I am excited um, that today we get to cover this particular passage. And so this is, a, this is a hard subject, and I'll talk more about that in a minute. But uh, for all of our friends who are not here, who are traveling on vacation this week, when they come back next week, you can say, last week we learned everything there is to know about predestination and election. We have no more questions. You should have been here. So I think that would be, I think that would be a kind thing for us to do when, when, when we see them again. Let's pray and we'll jump in. Lord of all power and might, the author and giver of all good things, graft in our hearts the love of your name, increase in us true religion, nourish us with all goodness, and bring forth in us the fruit of good works. Through Jesus Christ our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Well, so, um, we began our series in Ephesians last week, and that series we are entitling The Death of Our Divisions. And I think this is going to be helpful for us in, in such a turbulent time for us in the world. Last week I discussed the brokenness of the world and some of the attempts that the world makes on creating divisions among people or among people groups or even among Christians. And then as we begin this message of Christ unifying all things in himself, Paul writes to open this letter with exuberance. He is thoroughly excited. One commentator said that this, is, this opening is a bit like a snowball rolling down a hill and it's picking up momentum as it goes. And that's, as, you're, as you read it in this opening, that is what you find. He just kind of continues and he just piles on and piles on. So, Paul ascribes, um, describes each member's role, uh, each member of the Trinity's role in the process of salvation throughout this passage. Uh, he starts with the Father and the Son and ends with the Holy Spirit. But he begins with these words. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And other versions might say in the heavenlies. So it's not even, it, it doesn't necessarily make it a place. It's in the heavenlies, in this heavenly realm. Well, as we look just at the beginning of this, um, the, the other passages we read are lectionary passages. I, cho- I, I, left, I chose to leave our regular lectionary passages because they emphasized that sovereign hand of the Lord in creation then Jesus in the gospel, Jesus' sovereignty over the wind and the, and the waves. And so I think it's helpful, those, those passages are helpful for us to understand that the Lord is even sovereign over our salvation. When we're looking at this, who is it that is the source of every spiritual blessing? Well, it says, Blessed be God and Father of the Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies. Well, so the source is God the Father. He is the one who is the subject of most of the action that's happening in these verses. For instance, he blessed us in verse 3. He chose us in verse 4. He destined us in verse 5. He freely bestowed his, uh, upon us his grace, verse 6. He lavished his grace upon us in verse 8. Uh, he made known to us. His will and purpose in verse 9. So, 
This is, this is the Lord, the, the God, the Father, lavishing his grace upon us, not because we deserve it, simply because he loves us. Paul began talking about God's grace and love. That's how he starts this passage. And then he talks about his will, and then he talks about God's purpose and plan. So this is not um, some haphazard thing that's going on. There is actually a definite plan of God in place. This is about God the Father who has set his love upon us, who has poured out his grace upon us, all while working out his eternal plan. Uh, Today, as we look at God's plan unfolding, we'll see that he blesses us with every spiritual blessing in Christ. So to begin with, we're going to look, and I'm dividing this among uh, a past blessing, a present blessing, and a future blessing. So if we look first at the past blessing, and we'll see that the past blessing is election. So in verses 4 and 6, verse, verse 4 begins, says, Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. So, Paul here is saying he chose us. He predestined us. Paul's talking about the will of God the Father. The one who need not be questioned in Job. The one who empowers our Lord Jesus and has that same power to stop the wind and the waves. This is the same one whose will it is as he's talking about us being predestined. What, it, what Paul's talking about here is the doctrine of predestination and election. Um, now, mo- most of our, our, our crowd, I would know, and, and, uh, and, and you, you may have reconciled this doctrine at some point. You may still be, still be wrestling with it. It may still give you kind of willies, and that's okay. Uh, I think this is a complicated doctrine. I, I have heard that it's a doctrine that should be taught to mature believers. So there should be people who have kind of a grounded faith before we start talking about election. I think that I, I have seen Facebook conversations going on about like, so do you suppose he chooses us or do we choose him? And what do you know? It's not a very productive Facebook conversation. Like, like most theological conversations on Facebook, it's not very productive recognizing that it oftentimes, I mean, like quality theologians, quality pastors say this should be taught to mature believers. I also heard Tim Keller talk about an evangelist in New York City using, he's leading with the doctrine of predestination election when he's evangelizing prostitutes on the streets of New York. Now, I find this very interesting. You see, depending on who we're talking to, in my case... I needed to be convinced I was actually bad because I was a good person. So in my mind, everybody needs convinced that way. Well, it's not necessarily true. Some people already know what they're doing is totally wrong. But like the idea that God is actually choosing people, and you might be one, 
Let me tell you the story. Now that becomes very interesting. So you, you use that however you may. But I find this interesting. Um, there are a few things I want us to know. And believe me, I'm not going to tell you all I want. Uh, because we're going to actually leave today. Um, and, this, and this sermon won't really be any longer than any other. So that means I'm not saying a lot that I would like to say about, the, about this topic. But there are three things I think we need to look at. First off, that this doctrine of um, election is of divine revelation. Where does it come from? Well, it comes from divine revelation, from God himself. Um, This is not a man-made doctrine, contrary to popular belief. And we live in an area where, if you're in these conversations, there can be a name come up that's associated with it, and if you're of that name, we don't want to really talk to you because we know you're just some sort of a heretic. And that name would be a Calvinist uh, or from John Calvin in the 1500s. This is not a doctrine that Calvin created in the 1500s. Calvin was a good follower of uh, Augustine or Augustine, uh, however you like that name, of Hippo in the around 400 time frame. Augustine did not develop this doctrine either. We are reading of this doctrine in God's holy word. This is a revealed doctrine from the scriptures of God, the scriptures that he gave us so that we would know. And again, as a reminder, God is gracious in that he allows us to know him and know his will and that he reveals it to us. There is nothing in us that deserves to know even who he is. He chooses to make himself known and then the way he actually saves people. And this is a piece of that. So, I think that we kind of need to recognize this, that this is simply a biblical doctrine, and we need to receive it as such. Um, In the Old Testament, the Old Testament makes very clear that God chose the nation of Israel, starting with Abraham, one person, out of all the peoples of the the land, uh, of, of the world, he chose one nation, and he makes very clear to them that this was, has nothing to do with what you're bringing to the table. This is not about your power, your goodness, your greatness, your strength, your might. No, actually it's in spite of all those things that I chose you as my people. That makes it very clear. We, you, you can't read the Old Testament in any other way. And then all of the forefathers of our faith, including Abraham's a great one to start, he calls him, and Abraham goes. So, we, in our American Christianity, and focusing on our desire and our will and our decision, have a hard time rationalizing all this. And then, and then through dispensational teaching, and if you've ever, got a, if you've ever had a Ryrie study Bible or a Schofield study Bible, and you're paying attention to these things, that's promoting dispensationalism. So you can say then, okay, sure, Jim, that's that Old Testament, but New Testament's an entirely different dispensation, and God's acting in an entirely different way. And I will say, no, he's not. He is not acting in a totally different way. Actually, the New Testament talks about uh, the God of the universe collecting to himself a people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. And calling them a a people to himself, a a nation, a, a holy nation, a nation of priests. Same thing he talked about with Israel in the Old Testament. So, we're, we're, not, we're not stretching anything on the biblical perspective when we're talking about the doctrine of election. Those people whom 
he chooses come to him, and those are the ones who are called saints of God. We talked about saints last week. So I recognize that we can't understand this great doctrine in full, and I don't pretend to. And I think we can distort the goodness of it and make people weary if we push for greater detail than has been revealed to us. So all I think we can do is walk in the light that we've been given. He, he has revealed it. We need to humbly accept it and then, uh, and, then, and then walk on. Second thing I want to see about the doctrine of election is it is an incentive to holiness. It is not, ex- and not an excuse for sin. And again, frequently in conversations, a lot of times the idea goes, well, then if you think that God has chosen you and therefore you're secure in your faith, then you get to go do whatever you want. Well, this is contrary to the doctrine altogether. Um, there, and, we, and, and this is tied in with other doctrines that eventually we'll discuss and talking about the perseverance of the saints, how the, the saints are going to persevere through sanctification process because the Lord is, sanct- is also persevering with them. That doctrine has been truncated to a doctrine that says, once saved, always saved. That leads to a license to sin. You come, I give a great gospel message, I do an altar call, you come, you pray today, and then you never darken the doors of the church again. Okay, well that's not salvation. You may have responded out of emotion to what I was saying. It could be the Holy Spirit even worked in you, but it would have been poor of us, the church, to not disciple you. Because the Lord calls us to go and make disciples of all nations. Not converts, but disciples. And that's a long-term process, life on life, walking through the Word and walking through life together. So, that's the intent of that. So, the idea that if you're into predestination, if you actually bought into that, you somehow have a license to sin, is just totally, it it, it makes no sense to what this doctrine really means. Um, Recognizing that if we have been purchased by his blood, if we have been called and redeemed, predestined by him, we have been predestined to become a son or daughter of his. So the, the, there's an idea that we would operate out of gratitude, that we, would, we are to be living toward holiness. So th- this is all in there in the whole package. So we don't divide that. Um, rightly understood, this doctrine will not in- encourage us or the church or our greater Anglican church to condone sin, it won't, it won't encourage you to condone sin or to uh, meld with the world kind of thing, which we'll talk about some more in a minute. Um, we're not going to take advantage of our security in Christ so that we can go sin. That's, Paul talks about that very explicitly. This would be acting out of our pride for our glory. And, and we'll, we'll, we'll expand on that. Third thing I want to see is the doctrine of election promotes humility, not boastful pride. So very quickly, um, I just have to say, if, if, you, if you claim Jesus, this doctrine is for you. Because you didn't claim him out of some wisdom you came up with. What this is saying is, if, you've, if you claim Jesus, if you claim to be a Christian, 
This is because he ordained this. This is according to his will. So then I would ask you, out of all the people of the earth, why you? Out of all the people of the earth, why me? Out of all the people of the earth, why would we claim that he has saved us? You see, I think it really is an audacious claim to claim that he is the one who saved us. It may sound rather arrogant or boastful, but the scriptures say this is what happened. And so for, as opposed to us standing and, 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 and using this from a position of pride, it humbles us because that, those are the questions we ask. And these are the songs that we sing. Lord, how can it be? How can it be that you would save a wretch like me? You see, when rightly understood, it brings you to humility, not a boast. If if we do this, if if we recognize that... um, He is the one who has done the work in us. Then with humble hearts, we desire to live in response, like this grateful response to this good news. So I I would like to say plenty more on that difficult topic, but we've got to move on. So our next, the next blessing we see, so the blessing, that was a past blessing, the blessing of election, because it happened in the past and, and, and you, you'll, you'll want to reread the scripture when you get a chance. Like after, after church, after you've had lunch, uh, bef- before you take your nap maybe, read through the scripture again and see if it means anything more to you, if you got anything out of it, that you remembered anything from the sermon. Because Paul is talking about before the foundations of the world were laid. This is a very much a past event. Now how's all that work? I don't know. I don't know how it works. I'm just saying this is what Paul is saying. That before you were thought of in your, your parents' eyes, before you were thought of in your grandparents, this goes back before the foundations of the earth. Let's look at, uh, let's look at verse 7. We're looking at a present blessing. And that present blessing is adoption. So this is in the here and now. It affects how we live. It says, in him... We have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. Well, all right. Now, we, gotta, we, we probably should refer back to uh, verse 5, where it says that he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. And then we get to 7. So, recognizing that he predestined us, he, 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 so then he, uh, he, he, that's, we are of the elect, he predestined us, he called us, he, he made us alive in Christ, so that we could become sons. So, why did, why did God create man? If he knew that the fall was going to happen. So, if, if, if God knew that man was going to rebel against him, why create him in the first place? Because this is what the... We get into some dangerous territory when we're asking 
or trying to probe for things the Bible hasn't told us. But the Bible does tell us this. So, and, and we often wonder when we were in Genesis 3 for six weeks back at Lent, you're like, well, so why, how's this start and how's it work? Well, according to what this is saying is it's before the foundation. This is, this is back before there's time, back before there's this world created. So there's back before an Adam and Eve. That's as back before the fall. And yet God knew he was going to save some out of all who were damned, if you will, or condemned. So why? Why would he do that? I offer this, perhaps this. This might be a place to start. That we might be called to a greater dignity than even creation. Now this is, now this is big scope stuff. So, in the great big picture, why would God create man if he knew they were going to fall, which apparently this says he did, because he knows he's going to save some. Why go ahead and create? Well, perhaps because he's called us to a greater dignity than creation. We think creation would have been great if Adam and Eve just hadn't fallen. And apparently it would have. Apparently it was pretty good where they were. But apparently we have a greater inheritance than what they had. You see, we may not understand that still, but ultimately he's calling us to something greater, something better, that we would be in relationship with him in this new heaven, new earth. We have been destined to be adopted as his sons and daughters to the praise of his glory. He chose us, and because he chose us out of the world, we respond by living into holiness. So, again, far, far be this from something that gives license to just go do whatever you want to do. John Stott wrote this. He says, It is inconceivable that we should enjoy a relationship with God as his children without accepting the obligation to imitate our Father and cultivate the family likeness. You see, our sonship carries responsibility. Now, what? again, not saying all I want to say, because sonship or adoption is one of my favorite topics. Uh, if I preached on just whatever I want all the time, I'd preach on justification and adoption. And I think adoption is what frees us to, to, to truly like recognize, and, and by, by lip service, if you've been hanging out in the church long enough, and I said, are you a son or daughter of the king, or, or are you a son or daughter of God, you would say yes, because we know that. We know the language. But, but do you know that? And I will contend, no, you don't. I think one of the successes of our church is that I tell you you're a sinner a lot, so I just want to go ahead and do that. And I want to point this out, that we don't embrace that like we need to. Why? Why do I say that? But, you know, and I, I've got plenty of personal issues of why I might say that. But there's a reality. When I talk with you, when I confess with you, we have an overriding fear of man in all kinds of areas of our lives. Well, you tell me. Where does this fear of man come from if you really realize? I mean, and this, this is that thing where I say all kinds of stuff, but what do you believe? What you believe is how you act, what you walk in, what you live in. And when you believe that you belong to God Almighty, who has called you out of darkness and into the light, and has brought you into 
the family and seated you at the table and you have intimate, personal relationship with him, then what does the fear of man matter to you? How can the fear of man rule in your life? So this is why we preach the gospel, the complete gospel to ourselves on a daily basis. We've got to be convinced of our acceptance into the family through adoption by the imputed righteousness of Christ. Hopefully I'm revisiting a couple of terms that those things need expanded on and we've got to move on. But it's this, when we tell ourselves this every day, then as we're faced with that, we're confronted with the fear of man and what, is, what does he think of me, she think of me. What if I don't do this? What if I do this? What if I brought up Jesus in this conversation? All those fear things, they'll go, they, they will certainly diminish anyway. So this great doctrine of adoption comes because God himself in his plan has deemed it right and good to adopt you into his family. And our sonship carries responsibility. This is not a free grace kind of thing where it matters not. No, you now have been given the family name and you have a desire to live into it. Somebody who claims to be given the family name and never has a desire to live into it, I would say, has not been given the family name. They may have tried to co-opt it, but they didn't. They were not given it. Let's see about future blessing. We've seen the past blessing of adoption, or I mean, sorry, a past blessing of predestination and election. We see the present blessing of adoption. The future blessing is unity. Let's look in verse 9. It says, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ, as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. Well, he talks about a mystery, making known to us the mystery of his will. What is this, what is this mystery that Paul's talking about here? Well, this mystery is that, that ethnic unity which will be found in Christ. So those whom he has called to himself are one in him, both the Jew and the Gentile. That's who he's talking about, of where that division comes from at that point. As we experience this in the body of Christ in the here and now, we're having a foretaste of the unity which is to come when the kingdom is fulfilled. There is a sad note that in uh, uh, the United States, on any given Sunday, that may be the most segregated time we still have uh, in, in the United States. Um, and I, there's, there is plenty of truth in that. It's not me twisting something. And I think there should be efforts to change that as, as is reasonable. There are reasons that those divisions still exist. And part of that, uh, we, our Anglican church uh, here in, in our diocese, have given opportunity for refugee churches to start in their congregations. From what I just said, it sounds like maybe it would be best if those refugees that came would just gather in and mix in with us. Well, the problem is they don't really speak our language. 
And having just been to Rwanda, where we didn't understand most of anything most of the time, the idea that you could gather a group of refugees and allow them and, and, and equip them to be worshiping in their own language, does that, does that, is that a, uh, is it a promotion of segregation, segregated time or not? Well, I think in p- people's eyes it might be, but there's also good reason for that. So the reason that the refugee church is meeting at a different time is not because the largely group of white people didn't want them there. It's so that they can worship in spirit and truth as they know it and understand it. So I think that's a good thing. So I, I think we need to be conscientious of, of the breadth of possibilities. And we don't force things because it's politically correct to uh, make, you know, if, if, if we found a group of refugees here, do we force them to come visit with or worship with us when it would be a, a not in their native tongue? And maybe that's doing more harm than good. So, but it's a real thing, and I think we need to be con- concerned about it. The reality is that the body of Christ should represent that fullness of Christ, that wholeness of Christ, where all those barriers get broken down. So I encourage us to be able to worship with and, and, and be friends with people who don't look like us. Now, that could be in, in a raci- the, the racial uh, division. It could be socioeconomic division. It could be in the generational division. And, we, and the church, so, you know, mark this day when nobody's here. I think that this moment is kind of significant for us and the vision we have for church. Because my vision for the church is not to take all the kids Andrew's age and put them all together. And take all of us old people and put us in here. Put Jeff's young, middle, or whatever, whatever he's called, the millennials, all in this little group. Well, I'd be a big group at this point. And I think that's silly. I think Andrew needs to be with me, the old man. So I can yell at him, scare him sometimes when I say, Andrew! You know, Fran's, Fran's husband's name is Andrew also, and so sometimes when I yell at Andrew Wilson, Andrew Bissell gets the bejesus scared of, out of him. But, it, but there's, there's good in that, in that multi-generational thing. My, my vision for church is that. I think in the Acts 2 model of church, they didn't have things segregated that way. So I think, I think we, the church, the greater church, talks about this thing of showing unity, and I think we need to be able to practice that. Well, geez, Jim, why would I ever want to come bring my kid over to your house? You've got nothing to do. Well, so what? Bring your kid over and let, let, let us visit. Let's talk together. Let's, let's, let me learn about him, him learn about me, etc. I think those are good things, and I think we need to be more intentional for those things. And then as we do continue to grow in our church, that we develop whatever it is we develop in light of this kind of unity passage. I'm not to say, not to say that there's not a, times that are appropriate for like men to be together or women to be together. I just think the majority of it is cross-generational, and, and that we're all together. Um, and, I, and we want our focus to be that. We don't, need a, uh, we don't need to be dividing so much that we have trouble emulating that which God is doing. That he's calling everybody from every tribe, tongue, and nation that they're going to be together. And our church should look like that. And whatever it is of categories that separate us, those things should be together. So... There is a thought that if God is going to unite all things in Christ through from heaven and earth, that there needs to be this um, 
melding of the church with society if the church is going to actually participate. And so I think the boundaries of church and what it should be involved in, what it should do and shouldn't do, I think those things can be very confusing and have been because of these things. Because there's, we, the church, are called to be a people who are helping with this restoration of all things. But this idea that this leads to a universal salvation is not there. Or that the church can't be told, you can't tell the difference between the church and the world is not there. There is a distinction between this new society that Jesus is creating, that's called the church, and the world. And there needs to be a distinction. The church does not, and I will agree with this, the church does not need to bar itself off from the world so that we are not a part of it. We, we don't need to be emulating the monastic movement and all of us become monks and move outside of town and live on a commune. We need to be in the community as salt and light. But we have different standards of living, different expectations. But what we have to understand with what this language is that Paul's talking about here is that Christ is creating a cosmic, this, like this ginormous way outside of us, way outside of the church, way outside the United States, way outside the world even, reconciliation that he's going to do. So that he reconciles all things to himself. Now, that I find very interesting. You know that the, the Romans 8 says that the, the earth groans for the day of redemption. Well, this cosmic redemption will unite um, all things when it comes to pass in the fullness of time, the things that God has created, these two creations, if you will. Creation, the world, and creation, the church. And they will come together and be under his lordship. He is the head of all. All things were created through Christ, the Bible says. All things were created for Christ, by Christ, and they are being held together by Christ. And one day they will be restored to Christ, as he is the head of all. Paul had these greater visions of Christ's work than perhaps we typically think in. But if we share in his vision, this vision that he's cast, this ginormous vision, then we will share in his praise. That's why this snowball keeps going. He is elated with what God has done. This is what we should be. We're going to share in his vision. We will share in his praise. You see, doctrine does not divide. We're, I, heard, I, I heard that before I came to this area, but I've heard it here a lot. Doctrine divides. Sometimes there's a promotion that we have no doctrine but we're just worshiping Jesus. Well, okay, you got some doctrine or you wouldn't know who Jesus is. Well, doctrine, rightly understood, rightly embraced, doctrine will lead to doxology. A praise of thanksgiving is doxology. It doesn't only lead to doxology, it also leads to duty. So, doctrine, rightly understood, helps us understand our duty. Life will become worship as we bless God constantly for having blessed us so richly in Christ. So lastly, we want to look at the scope of these blessings in 11 through 14. So let's look at 11. 
says, in him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of the truth, the gospel of our, your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. 14 says, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. So, Paul is speaking about the Jews being predestined according to the will of God in verses 11 and 12. When he talks about we, Paul's the Jew. Paul says, in him we have obtained an inheritance. He's, he's actually speaking, and I've never really thought through this until I studied this. I thought he was talking about us. I thought we were already us. I think he's distinctly talking about the Jewish people and, and helping us understand this unity that is happening. So when he says we have obtained an inheritance and have been predestined according to the purpose of him, etc., so that we who are the first to hope in Christ, so first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. So this is saying that he, uh, Paul, is, he's using the terms we to refer to the Jews. In verse 13, he says, to him, to in him you also, well, in him you also, he's referencing us, meaning the Gentiles. He says, you've been sealed with the Holy Spirit. And then look in 14, it says, who is the guarantee of our inheritance? So, I think he is delineating the different groups, then recognizing that we're together to receive the inheritance the, the, by the Holy Spirit. We have been sealed by the Holy Spirit. All those who come to faith have been sealed by the Holy Spirit. And we share, both Jew and Gentile, then share in this inheritance equally. A beautiful picture. Next thing I want to see out of the scope of these blessings is that God's people depend on God's will. So, how do we become children of God? Adopted, sealed, set apart as holy. Verse 11 says, according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will. You see, this is not a mistake. This is an intentional act of our Lord God Almighty, Creator of all things. He even knew that you needed to be saved. He's the one who did the acting to save you. Because he made it happen. Well, why did we become God's treasured possession? We understand the how. We know that we did because it was according to his will and good pleasure. But why though? Well, for the praise of his glory. As I know this seems all too simple, but this is what the Bible's telling us. It says that we did it, you know, how was because of his will. Why? was for his glory. So we live then as the new people in God's new society as we worship him with our words and our actions. And our lives are lived in humble gratitude because we know that our salvation began with his will and leads to the praise of his glory. Everything we have in Christ comes from God and returns back to God. All things begin with his will and end in his glory. How different this is 
than the world. Fallen man, us prior to coming to Christ, has unbounded confidence in himself, in his own ability, in his own will. And then he lives for what? For the praise of his own glory. You might be like me and say, yeah, that was me. Yes, that describes me. And it is because of this insatiable man-centeredness that the true gospel sometimes gets distorted or is repelled by many. They, they hear things and it already, when we're in this topic, there's a reaction that's created because you're telling me then I didn't really have something to do with my salvation. And according to what the Bible's saying is, that's true. It wasn't because you brought something good to the table, just like Israel. It's because he set his love on you. And it brings us to a humbling point. So, and, and, and let, let me just say, too, that that seems very mechanical, but the way the Lord works in us, he, he changes. He starts with who we are, these fallen, rebellious people. And then he works in our hearts and changes it. And so all along, we're running hard and long after what we want. So we're running hard and long after sin. And then he works in our hearts and changes us. And somehow we're convicted by this or convicted by that. And then we start seeking him. And it, there is a place where the Bible says there's no one that seeks him. Then there's another place that says seek him while he may be found. So both are true. So I think in our deadness in our sin we don't seek him is a way to understand that but i think when he works in us makes us alive in christ though we may not have come to that decision moment yet we start seeking him and as we seek him we find him and then is it wrong then that i say i chose christ i think not i think actually you did we just recognize that had he not predestined and called you and changed your heart you never would have I think, but, I, but to wipe out some of the myth about the mechanical nature of that, he does this without violating who we are. And so we volitionally choose to follow him because he is the one who's changed our hearts and convicted us of our sins. Where prior to that, we had no conviction at all. We didn't even know we were separated from him, really. We just didn't care. So, for God's chosen people, in contrast with those who are the, the worldly fallen people, that contrast for who we were, God's chosen people have at least begun to look at him and be turned from our self-centeredness and receive what it is he has to offer. Our new society, then, that we're, he's forming, that we're part of, that he's calling us into, it has different values and different ideals. So, God's people are God's possession who live by God's will for the praise of his glory. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, let's pray.